One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airport. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk. Stronger podcast, fairer podcast, podcast for everyone. Strike up the band! Let's soon that be soon is different from let's soon that be Cummings. Try and start you... the year being a little fair <laughs> no, no, to all... the band, will you, Danny? <laughs> they absolutely should not water yeah, this yeah. down to the point of, of homeopathic disappearance. Here we are again then, it's uh, How to Win an Election with me, Matt Chorley, joined as ever by our political masterminds, new Labour mastermind, Peter Mandelson, Polly McKenzie's Policy McKenzie, formerly Nick Clegg's Brain, uh, Director of Policy uh, for the Lib Dems, and Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkstein, how are we all? Fine, uh, we just had a bit of a debate about whether Matt's jacket is dapper or not, which is even more amusing for people listening, because they can't, they can have to imagine You better watch jacket. it, you can and watch it back on YouTube. Dapper. Peter was a bit more sceptical about it than Polly was. <laughs> it's quite soft, I think there's a lack of interfacing. Is there? You mean yeah. it's not got strong shoulders? No. But maybe it's the problem, I've not got strong shoulders. <laughs> Can you think of anyone else who's not got strong shoulders, Peter? Come on, you've got better shoulders than Ed Miliband. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, let us know what you think about what we're all wearing. You can email howtowin at thetimes.co.uk uh, if you are watching on YouTube. Now, we've had some uh, we've had some emails. Last week, Polly, we're, we were talking about uh, uh, your, your elections to watch. Uh, you chose Taiwan. Well, we've had an email about what you said. Uh, says, Hi, I'm Xu Yang, I speak Chinese, and I just want to say that Polly's pronunciation of... KMT Kuomintang. ...on the previous episode was absolutely accurate. Phew. Glad that one of the three chose the Taiwanese elections because it matters, and under the current circumstances, it's romantic to Happy New Year. So there we are. Well done. Uh, if you want to get in touch, how to win an election uh, at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, now, we're going to talk about smaller parties, but particularly the Lib Dems, because Ed Davies all splashed all over the papers, which is normally what the Lib Dems would like, but possibly not for the reason that he would. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But since we last met, uh, Rishi Sunak has said his working assumption is the election will be in the second half of the year. Ben emailed in from Portishead, uh, the place, not the group, he says. Uh, Sunak has just co- talked about the general election being in the second half of the year. People are taking this at face value and saying it'll then be in the autumn. I think he could be doing this to wrongfoot Labour so they'll be caught off guard when he calls a snap election in the spring. What do you think, Peter? I think that's a pretty astute observation uh, because he hasn't ruled out an autumn election. Working assumption is the sort of vaguest uh, formulation he could get away with. Obviously, the speculation about the election was sort of getting under his skin as so much else is seeming, seemingly doing these days with the Prime Minister um, but I think you know if he saw for example you know the uh, sort of green shoots of economic recovery and by some sort of miraculous sort of 
renaissance, the economy suddenly started looking up, he might make a dash for it. Or if he saw in the Labour Party some policy weakness or division or whatever, um, he might want to take advantage of that. I mean, I can't think in the Labour Party what policy area might come before their absolute determination to win the election, but it's possible. Um, of course, having, if he does delay it to the uh, autumn, then he's giving the Labour Party plenty of time to iron out any policy weaknesses and friction. So, in a sense, he might be doing the Labour Party a favour. It's basically what you suggested last week, isn't it, He had to sort of hose it down without ru- categorically ruling it out. Yeah, I think, I think he has pretty much. I mean, I think if we've learnt something about Rishi Sunak in the last year, it is that his political calculation is not his greatest uh, game. And so I, I just think um, maybe you might, as Prime Minister, have, uh, you know, tried to lure the Labour Party onto the rocks. I just think he said, told us when he's thinking of holding the general election. And if you aren't going to hold the general election in, in May and you aren't going to hold it in January 2025, it's better probably to say it. So my view is we now know roughly speaking, when the election is. There's a small chance, of course, in all things that it won't be then. But by and large, we know when it is, and so we can stop discussing that and concentrate <laughs> on what actually are the issues. Yeah, yeah. By the way, if the strat- you know, the reason why I don't think this is the right thing to do, to wait yeah. till October, November, is because if you try to put a list together of the things that might change between now and then, you're hard put to it to discover what they are. Uh, and so therefore, I think a feeling that uh, election has been delayed will simply build uh, a case, you know, will build a momentum against the Conservatives. So I wouldn't have done this, but if I was going to do it, if I was going to hold it in the autumn, he clearly wants to do that. I sort of thought he probably would, and if he does want to do that, then it's right to say so, so that at least he doesn't get the, you know, everyone thinks he's going to go in May, and then he says at the last minute he's not going to. And actually, uh, I was struck at the weekend, uh, Keir Starmer saying, that uh, all he's doing is he wants to clock up two years in Downing Street, it's putting vanity before country. That sort of mood could start to... The one thing it has done is ruled out your theory, Polly, that we're going to end up having an election in 2025. Well, uh, yeah, he said it's not going to happen. There are no guarantees in politics. (laughs) He's definitely in a stronger position now because if he... If he had allowed that uh, speculation to continue, then going for the autumn would look weak. Now, on the off chance he does go for May, it looks strong to do so. Uh, like Danny, I think that his best bet for the Conservative Party would be to go early, to go in the spring. I, I still don't think he will. Mm. And and what if bad things come along in October and November and there's bad news? He still could string it out just to get that extra year onto his... Well, I suppose that's a calculation. You could be waiting for something to turn up, but the, yeah. the, 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 the risk think, is that something might turn well, up. Well, i tell you yeah. what I think the risk of turning up is, is Donald Trump in the autumn. If, as is almost certain to be the case, he's the Republican uh, candidate... Uh, the, he is going to run a mother and father of campaigns and that's going to coincide with and overlap with Rishi Sunak's uh, election campaign. And I think that's a sort of uh, association he doesn't want to mm. invite. Uh, they will be running, after all, similar campaigns. I mean, small state, lower taxes, tough on immigration, uh, etc. And I think that what... Uh, Danny, you're wincing. Uh, I that's, think, a, that's even more stretched than your jumper neck. I, I can't... <laughs> I don't think so. But why do you say that? case that they're going to be running similar campaigns. Indeed, indeed, I think, actually, well, I would say that... The, the, OK, so I'd put it to you, the, uh, the, the, the difficulty for Sunak will be exactly the opposite. It's quite con- 
considerable, this difficulty. I agree with that. Um, but the difficulty is simply that um, there'll be a populist campaign to Sunak's right by the Faragists, maybe even by Nigel Farage. Yeah. It will gain a lot of energy from Donald Trump's uh, campaign. There'll be pressure on Sunak to run Donald Trump's election campaign, but he neither has the inclination to do that nor the capacity for it because he's a very different but, but, but person. But what's the alternative, Danny? I mean, he has already decided to open the new year by being the, not the change candidate, but the continuity candidate. Britain's on the right track. Don't risk it with Labour. Well, in fact, let's just have, and, remind ourselves of that because Danny's previously talked about the three types of elections, time for a change, on the right track, or better the devil you know. So here he was being changey-changey at the party conference in October. But the worst thing about Sakir is that he just says whatever he thinks will benefit him the most. Doesn't matter whether he can deliver it. Doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if he said the opposite just a few weeks or months ago. He is the walking definition of the 30-year political status quo I am here to end. So there we was, changey, changey. And then this was him yesterday. Now the choice facing our country at that election is do we stick with the plan that is starting to deliver the long-term change that our country needs or do we go back to square one? So this is a major switch in strategy. <laughs> um, I hadn't realised it had been quite as stark uh, as it is. But he, he is becoming the continuity candidate. Um, uh, and he is spearheading this campaign, Danny, I'm afraid, on, on, on two issues. One is lower taxation, which he can only advocate uh, by embracing a smaller state the state doing less and spending uh, less in order to give lower taxes instead. And the other is immigration, which is still a drum that he keeps on beating, I think, in a rather futile way. But nonetheless, there's colossal pressure okay. uh, in his both within his party so, and outside his party in the reform, okay, you know, to, 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 to pursue these issues. Now, you say, well, that's got nothing to do with Donald Trump. It just so happens that those are Donald Trump's well, they, issues. They are, but that's, uh, they're uh, not. The second of those is, um, but the first of them, lower, a smaller state, is not really, and uh, lower taxation isn't really Donald Trump's uh, theme. Uh, he is running a, a populist campaign, which is about the whole nature of the establishment. Uh, it is indeed the campaign that Rishi Sunak, I did think, did dally with, but yeah. could never have pulled off yeah. because he's not Donald Trump. So I, I think that uh, the idea that well, those two will be the he, same he's is basically not, doing that. Donald Trump is doing both these things. Of course, he wants to offer for lower taxes and a smaller state while saving everyone from uh, oblivion. I mean, he's a sort of Johnsonian uh, character. He's both, you know, a, a nationalist and somebody who wants to bail everyone uh, out of their troubles uh, by spewing out populist slogans uh, the entire but, time. But, but, he, I, but I, the, the point I'm making is that, you know, in the, in the, in the media, in the public's mind, there will be th these two campaigned running in parallel and there will be a lot of pressure on Sunak uh, both within his party and from the Faragists in the Reform Party uh, uh, to go you know to change course and strike a more populist right-wing uh, set of notes. Uh, 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 Trump will be doing the same in the United States. All these things uh, are at risk of merging in the public's mm. mind. And for a candidate like Sunak, who has to broaden his base and reach out to the centre of politics, he's, if he's going to stand any chance, I think that is. Uh, I think it's not brand enhancing for him. Polly, what do you make of all this? I, 
Uh, well, I think Peter's also done an about turn. Oh. Well, because you said that he was going to run a campaign like Trump, and now you're saying that he's going to come under pressure to run a campaign like Trump. So I, I've slightly lost... Well, the two things are not opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he will, come under, he will come under pressure because a lot of people in his own party don't want continuity conservatism because they don't think it's real conservatism. No, I think that, they I th- want a yeah. real conservative campaign headed by a real conservative leader, okay. you know, with real conservative uh, uh, policies, and we all know where that is. Uh, and uh, and it's, I think it's the reason why Sunak has pivoted so much from one set of campaign messages to something completely different is because he he isn't holding his party together he is coming under pressure he doesn't really know who he is or what he is mm. that he that um, he wants to do and what at what point does that because clearly what he's done is he's tried one thing and he thought well that's not worked you know he, he tried just quietly quiet delivery his five pledges a year ago gave that six months that didn't work it was a wobble over the summer he became the change candidate uh, in the autumn that didn't work then he brought back david cameron so he can't be the change candidate if he's uh, attacking david cameron david cameron's but at what point is all that sort of flip-flopping? I mean, what well, they accuse Keir Starmer of, does that become a problem in and of itself? It's not just that he keeps changing, it's that people can seize all over the place. Well, it's interesting as well that the sort of the half-life of these individual slogans is reducing, yeah. right? Like six months, three months, uh, we've got exponential uh, yeah. reductions in the, in the length of his campaign slogans. So I, there will come a point when people will notice that he has not said the same thing uh, m- more than two days in a row, and and I, I, that really that it's that the way that desperation harms strategy um, is is becoming more and more mm. apparent. They they are casting around because because they're they're frightened. Yeah, look, I think it was la- lamentable to to put forward that, in my view, absurd time for a change strategy uh, I understood why they did it because there's a public mood that it's time for a change and because continuity will be so difficult to make work but it was obviously not going to be able to land it I, I, I think um, you know therefore the, the criticism that's being leveled against them is completely merited however uh, it's also important to remember that literally nobody knows that he made that speech except for a few political aficionados that he made a speech about change uh, it'll have damaged his reputation among people who are commenting like us about, about his political strategy but but really the crucial thing is does he land with enough time on broadly the correct strategy and i think he has so i'm i'm pleased about that i i, I think as we've discussed before, the biggest problem he's got, and Polly's put it so well, that's a brilliant phrase about de- what the, the impact of desperation on political strategy. The, the problem for the Conservative Party is none of these strategies, time for a change, better the devil you know, or continuity, um, Britain's on the right track, none of them quite work. But of the three of them, this is definitely the best one, yeah, and so sure it's good that he's moved that. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I think it's harder than you imagine to run a continuity you know, Britain's doing well, Britain's heading in the right direction, isn't Britain looking up, so let's just continue. That fights completely with reality, the national mood and what voters think. I think there's a variation of change which he could have adopted uh, and it is the 1986 Thatcher model of the next steps 
forward. He's got to say, what yeah. is the point of voting for a fifth but term? But that was Britain's con- on the right track. I you mean, know, they actually used I, that slogan. Yeah, I, I know, I know, <laughs> Danny. But, but they also had a programme which they launched in their 1986 conference, a year ahead of the election, where she set out all the next things that a Conservative yes. government and, was going and, to do. We haven't seen hide nor no, hair No, no, I agree with that. So I'm not saying, I'm not just saying, you've got to show, when you say Britain's on the right track, you've got to show what the track is, obviously. <laughs> Fred, you do. I mean, that, well, I think people know what, what the track is. What they want no, no, to know is where is this track leading yeah, that's, to? Well, that's what, what, I mean, what, that's what it, I mean by track. What is a re-elected right? fifth-term <laughs> conservative do, government do, going to do to take the you note? Know, what are the building blocks? What yeah, do they do next? That's why they say stop in your tracks when you're not going anywhere. <laughs> but I'm talking about going down a track. Yeah. Um, and we're getting lost in our metaphors <laughs> here. The point about to get Britain's We've got on the track. Right. Britain's on the right track, don't turn back, is that is a strategy that says, we've got a direction, uh, if you want to keep on doing these things, we know where we're going, we know what the next steps are. And right. that's, that's and, the and only that strategy. that is what is absent. No, no, and yeah. I'm saying no they've, sign now, of they've now endorsed the fact that they're going to try... <laughs> to advance that and that's that's a, I, that's a good thing but it's really hard for them to do it when the conservative party has had five prime ministers yeah. five different sets of tracks of that they have been on <laughs> of course um most of whom going in conflicting areas each directions each different prime minister has slagged off the previous prime minister and so th- i think that's why we had danny kruger a backbench mp talking this week uh, no a, a leaked comments uh, saying that unfortunately uh, the country is in a worse off situation than it was 13 years ago when the Conservatives took power. And and as, as Peter says, if that is people's kind of lived experience, their reality on the ground, then saying it's starting to work... Like, that's fine for Margaret Thatcher in her, going into her second term, right? It's starting it to work, which is sec- what's... It wasn't her second term. It was, it was going, it was going into my third, the third election in 86. 86. 86. I thought you said 80. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I was, I'm too young, too young. It's hard truth. Um, <laughs> Are you starting to become a bit ageist? Is this what's creeping in here? Look, yes, also, absolutely. we shouldn't forget what no. the real Conservative campaign is going to be about, and that is Labour, 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 Labour. And he will be day in, day out, trying to work out how he can get into the sing- in a single sentence... Uh, right up until polling day, the words Labour, higher taxes, additional borrowing. That is what the the Conservative campaign is heading towards. So an interesting question, Matt, is will he abandon the second part of the strategy, which is the bit where he says the problem with Starmer is he's all over the shop and you don't know what he stands for, in favour of he's very dangerous. So yeah. that's that's yeah, the other bit. Because yeah. um, he can't both be very dangerous and not believe in anything. Correct. That's well, a um, cho- choice as well. Up next, we're not going to do Labour, 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 Labour. We're going to do Lib Dem, Lib Dem, Lib Dem, Lib Dem. Ed Davey is all over the papers. Uh, he's acute, well, facing calls to resign. Uh, I mean, it's always, you know, the big problem the small party uh, often has is trying to get attention, but it's the sort of attention they need. And what role will they play in the next election? We'll do that next on How to Win an Election. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Yeah, this is How to Win Election with me, Matt Chorley, joined by Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. Now, we talk a lot about Rishi Sunak and the Tories and Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. But unusually, the leader of one of the smaller parties, Ed Davey, seems to be dominating the news, but not in the way he'd like, facing questions about his his time in government. Uh, Polly, he probably thought he was beyond the baggage of the coalition years. He'd be very careful to sort of try not to mention his involvement in five years of, uh, of being in power. I think he has talked with pride about his record as energy secretary, actually, and, and, and rightly so, you know, given the impact that that period had on where we've got to on renewables. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to me. Ed was the postal services minister. He did refuse to meet Alan Bates. He then met Alan Bates and was the first postal minister to do so. Much more interestingly, really, he was one of 12 postal ministers over the course of this extraordinary, monstrous injustice, uh, covering Labour, uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. And and it feels very much like uh, political machinations that he is being targeted as as the sole postal services minister being held up for opprobrium. Um, in, there's, there's one good argument in favour of that. He's the only one who happens to currently be a party leader. I guess, of the 12. But uh, it feels very much like um, it is convenient for both Labour and the Conservatives to deflect blame onto somebody else. It would be really nice if uh, if they could say this wasn't a monumental fa- failure of the state, a monumental failure of all three political parties, but say, oh, it was those awful yellow people. It was all Ed Davies' fault. Um, and I think that if if we did decide to crystallise blame around Ed Davey, that would be a real, sh- a real shame because it, it, actually we need to think very seriously about how something so awful could be permitted to happen by essentially an arm of the state. Well, to be fair to Ed Davey, uh, I spoke to him about this uh, last week and put to him a question who was asked, actually, I'd, I'd previously interviewed Alan Bates, who he refused to meet and then had met, uh, the leading post office campaigner, and I, I put that question to Ed Davey. I was deeply misled uh, by uh, post office executives. And, and Alan, Alan is right to raise the point. They didn't come clean. Um, and there was definitely attempts to stop me uh, meeting them. And I regret that 
we didn't do more, but we were clearly misled. I think ministers from all political parties were misled. Peter, uh, and that is that this whole issue really broke out into the open in 2010, if my memory serves me right, with the imprisonment, I mean, the, of, a, of a pregnant Surrey sub-postmistress uh, who was accused of stealing £74,000 and she was handed down, wrongful conviction, and handed down a term of imprisonment. And that's when all this really broke out into uh, the open. It then took... Uh, Ed Davey, two years before he set up an inquiry to look into the uh, failing glitches in the software uh, of the whole Horizon system. Now, I'm not exonerating everyone else. I think it is very unfortunate to sign off a letter presented to you saying, I don't think there would be any useful purpose in talking to you about this when when this whole issue had burst into the open as it had done uh, with this wrongful conviction in 2010. So I think, you know, you're making a reasonable point, Polly, uh, but I think I, I, I think he has more to answer for than perhaps you're implying. Just Basically, I think Polly's right. It would be absurd to crystallise the whole of this into Ed Davey. Actually, by the way, the Computer Weekly story came in 2009. Uh, you know, Tracy Felstead went to jail in 2002. Um, so uh, everybody um, is is uh, implicated, and it would be absurd to crystallise it merely in Ed Davey. But it would also be absurd not to crystallise it in anybody, right? So my, my view is um, it's appropriate that everybody responds to what was is one of the great scandals of the uh, post-war era with some reflection. You know, I'm thinking about it too as to uh, our own reactions to it, the speed of them, the things that we thought worked that didn't work, you know, what the private finance initiative and its implications for computing, the the benefit system and how it was introduced into the uh, swipe cards, um, the whole way that we interact with the post office. Everybody's got to think about all of these things. You're right, Polly. It just happens that Ed Davey is one of the most prominent people from who was involved with it, who's still left, and therefore I think it's a chance. You know, as it happens, I ha- I generally speaking think the position of being leader of the Liberal Democrats isn't actually that valuable a one, right? So because because I don't think there's anything that the Liberal Democrats stand for that you couldn't have as an opinion and be in the shadow cabinet holding. And so therefore, the Liberal Democrats are going to help Labour get elected, which is totally fine because they're centre-left party, and then stay outside the government that they helped to form uh, for reasons that I cannot understand. And when we had a discussion over Christmas as to what it was the Liberal Democrats, apart from electoral reform, to help themselves because of their existence as a party, would actually want, uh, it turned out there wasn't anything that they want that Labour wouldn't be perfectly willing to do anyway. So I think he could do something much more useful than being leader of the Liberal Democrats, which is to say, in this political system, somebody has to take responsibility. And I'm the sort of person who comprehends that. Paula Vanells isn't willing to take responsibility. The Tories gave her an honour. They're not willing to take responsibility. Labour had a role uh, before the 2010 general election in this. Mm. Nobody, yeah. you know, the, the media, you could, you could accuse everyone and say, but me... Because, because I'm a Liberal Democrat, because that's what Liberal Democrats do, uh, that's why we're different, I am going to uh, resign. Um, I think there's, there would be a power to that that he's not going to get from any of the other things that he does, most of which don't change anything. Yeah, yeah. Peter, we should um, point out, you were Business Secretary immediately before. Mm. Was this something that came across your desk? Were you aware of, you know, Danny was listing, obviously went back a long time. Do you feel you were misled by the post office? 
I wasn't dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, no. Uh, my department was, other ministers were. But I do remember what was the absolutely dominant issue at the time to do with post offices, and that was the programme of closures, uh, which a previous Secretary of State had agreed with the uh, Treasury, and we were facing enormous political pressure. I mean, my department was having to field ministers to weekly adjournment debates in the House of Commons as MPs, you know, took up the cudgels of their local uh, post office, and it was a huge issue. I mean, it just Mm. absorbed vast amounts of, of time and energy, and I'm afraid to say it was a massive distractor uh, from this really big and, and appalling uh, set of circumstances that uh, befell these sub post well, I suppose it actually points to the fact that people felt very strongly about their post office. The post office is you know, a great institution that people mm. want to stand and defend, yeah. which was precisely the, the brand, if you like, that the post office were leaning on. The, the, people felt they couldn't question what was going on at this great institution. Well, the other issue, of course, was that by then the post office had become a sort of an arm's length sort of separate body that Mm. was operationally independent of the government. And there were just endlessly drafted letters put up to ministers to to use to reply to MPs saying, you know, this is a matter for the post office. Um, Now, as, as I say, I mean, this started sort of bubbling up uh, in in the years before we left office, but the major breakthrough was that appalling imprisonment but, but, but that Peter, occurred in two thousand and ten. Prosecutions continued until twenty fifteen. I think the idea that there was a sort of watershed moment when publicly there was. Yeah, yes, there was. Well, I suppose the questions have been asked, but there's still no evidence. You know, the, like yeah, you said, yeah. the prosecutor. But I suppose this goes to the, also to the problem. People say, "Well, Ed Davy asked questions." He says, "I wish I asked more." I mean, it, we, we, it now appears, if you haven't watched the documentary and read a lot of it, that what even was being said in the courts by the post office wasn't true. So it's not a huge surprise that perhaps lying to ministers. But it's all, this is the problem of being a minister, isn't it? There, how many times can you say to an official or a public body, is this right, before you just have to, you know, you've got other things to, to deal with? Yeah, but there's, this is what you have civil servants for. Mm. I mean, they are engaged day to day. Uh, in managing the relationship between the government and the post office. I'm not trying to sort of point the finger at particular civil servants, obviously, but they should have been much more focused and cognizant of what was going on, and their job uh, is to, in a sense, both to protect ministers and serve the wider public uh, interest, and in this instance, that failed. We, we, um, we, We correctly argued that Boris Johnson... uh, was not in command of Number 10 Downing Street, the people that he'd employed, and uh, was lied to by officials about uh, what sort of parties were taking place in Number 10 Downing Street, and then did not assiduously in any way... As follow, if he didn't know. ...follow up. Well, you're asking that question. So uh, you're you're asking that exact question. And my, my conclusion was uh, that it was a resigning matter for exactly the sort of questions that you're, you, know, you raised your eyebrows about. But you cannot say that and then turn around to somebody who I think does have a greater reputation for probity and consciousness, conscientiousness, like Ed Davey, and say that rule doesn't apply... Uh, to him, because I can I can assure you that if this post office scandal had all been Boris Johnson's fault, we would never have heard the end of it. Right, the week <laughs> uh, the, the rest is politics would be I mean, holding special it, podcasts it, it, only to concentrate on that. <laughs> Twitter would have been full of it, right? But it's because it was spread among all the political parties and every political argument, and didn't seem to prove anybody mm-hmm. right uh, that nobody took it up. Really. So you're asking him to turn the clock back ten years and retrospectively resign. 
I'm asking him to take responsibility for it uh, as a political act. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm actually more suggesting it to him actually, rather than you know, because what, what so am I to so, ask so, him to do it? So let's, yeah. let's let's zoom out a little bit then, because clearly, you know, the Lib Dems had a long time under the radar. Nobody's thinking about them. You know, they're a bit bubbling along, 10, 12 points in the in the pops. What what impact will this have? You know, because we've seen it before. You know, Ed, we've talked. Tim Fowen spent the twenty seventeen election campaign almost entirely talking about his views on gay sex. That wasn't a big election issue, but that, you know, he got involved in that. If the election campaign, as and when it comes, is involved with questions about Ed Davies' poverty, or people have already decided about that, does that is that a is it will it become an election problem? I suppose is the question. Well, I think it. it affects uh, all of the parties at, at two levels. The one is the the obvious PR uh, issues around, you know, what does the public think about Ed Davey or, or what do they think about Keir Starmer's supposed involvement, which Boris Johnson kept bringing up uh, with Jimmy Savile, for example. You know, it, it, being able to say, um, and we've actually seen a whole series of stories briefed into the papers about Keir Starmer, you know, was, a, was the barrister who defended this bad guy or that bad guy without sort of acknowledging that that's like literally how barristers work. They have this cab rank rule and they have to take the next client. So, and that is being done partly to uh, muddy the water and suggest that these guys are, are not to be trusted, shouldn't be elected. But the other thing it does is it actually eats up operational capacity for the political parties. That particularly affects the smallest party, the Liberal Democrats, because they've just got fewer people. In the 2010 general election, there was this wall of allegations uh, thrown at Nick Clegg after he did so well during that um, uh, the, de- the leaders' debate, uh, incl- you know, alleging so- all sorts of financial improprieties in his office, which weren't true, alleging that he was a Nazi sympathiser, you know, like just all of this stuff. And part that 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 was laughable to lots of people at the public level, but what it did to us as the several dozen people working on the campaign is it just kept everybody busy for 16 hours a so, day somebody going who could be doing something statements. else has to go and find the thing so, that he wrote to see yeah. this I'll, that's what he said and uh, i'll tell you what the public think about it david which is they don't um they, they have never heard is. of him um, and no. that's to the extent to which people have not heard of Ed Davey is really important for everybody who listens to this podcast to understand because everybody who listens to this podcast mm-hmm. almost is a selecting group that who knows who he is. But the point is, um, Danny, when he's it comes been up, introduced to them for the first time yeah, so, through this one. So that's what I, I, I agree with you completely. So now, for the first time, he will appear through to the consciousness, by the way, only of even now a limit, very limited number of people. But during the election, when there's a little bit more broadcasting time equality, um, I think that he will then face this quite a lot. I think the impact it will probably have on bottom line voting will not be that great. If you wanted to vote Liberal Democrat in a seat, mainly it'll be as an alternative to Labour to get rid of the Tories. That'll still be a stronger impulse. And your view about Ed Davies' conduct as post office minister probably won't affect it that greatly. So I I think this is an opportunity uh, for Ed David to do something more consequential and useful than being leader of the Liberal Democrats. But I recognise that is an, a niche view. And every time I express it, people laugh, I'm deadly serious. But also, no. at, at some point, we must come back to this question because uh, a political party can have profound impact in the system, as we saw with UKIP, um, without winning an election. And actually, the, the fact of there being three parties has an impact that I think Danny is sort of completely disregarding. Although and, I, and when, when Ed was on last week, because right. he actually came on to talk about his campaign, and he was talking about tax thresholds and people being granted the tax. And he said when he was in government, 
the tax thresholds went up. I said, oh, very good. So, you, you know, so, so uh, are you saying the tax thresholds should go up? Well, I'm not going to set out my tax plans now. <laughs> uh, okay, so would you, you know, you were in government with the Conservatives last time. Would you do that again? No, I wouldn't do that. Would you go into government with the Labour Party? I'm not here to answer hypotheticals. I'm gonna... <laughs> so he's sort of, he's not committing to a plan. Sounds a great interview. And even if he didn't have a plan, <laughs> even if he did have a plan, he's not going to demand that the Labour Party do it as the price of going Sorry, into government. He said that he wouldn't go in with the Conservatives, but he also said he wouldn't answer hypotheticals. Yes. But isn't whether he'd go in with the Conservatives yeah. or hypothetical. Yeah. Okay. Well yeah. spotted, Danny. Well, well, Thank good. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, was it that, that blindingly obvious? I'm really sorry. The, that was very uh, obtuse. That's a fundamental. The no, other thing that strikes me, Peter, is that we always hear people saying somebody says says or does something daft. We are. This is going to be played again and again during the election campaign, and we never hear of these things again. You know, we should be realistic about it. Is January an election? October, November. What Ed Davey did or didn't do in January about something he didn't didn't do in 2010 is probably going to be slightly less pertinent. It, of course, but the, the, the fact remains that for the overwhelming bulk of the British people, the first time they will have known or ever heard of Ed Davey is through this story and mm. through this lens. And so it will sort of lodge in people's minds. Will it make a great sort of difference to how they vote uh, for or against the Liberal Democrats? No, whenever the election comes. People will be voting Liberal Democrat in order to get the Tories out. Let's be honest. I mean, the much bigger group in the electorate, uh, than those who are sort of minded to vote Liberal Democrat are people who don't vote, don't know, don't care, and are probably going to abstain. Uh, so that that's how much the Liberal Democrats matter. But here's the fact, is that the uh, Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives are going to sort of face a sort of double pincer action. <laughs> you know, to the right, there are going to be people peeling off and voting for Farage and the Reform Party uh, because that's what they feel like doing. They want to punish the Conservatives, but they don't want to vote for the Labour Party. Uh, they want to vote for a sort of nationalist, populist alternative. And to the left, he's going to be faced with people peeling off to vote uh, for the Liberal Democrats when they think the Liberal Democrats have a better chance in a particular constituency of unseating the Conservatives. This is the electoral yeah. reality. It doesn't actually matter what the Liberal Democrats say or do there is still going to be uh, this pincer action on the left with people voting Liberal Democrat because they want to punish the Tories. And actually, the fact that people didn't know who he is was part of the strategy. They wanted something nice and quiet, and then you could vote for the Lib Dems wherever you thought. I've actually just looked up on YouGov's list of the most famous other UK public figures. 64% know who Ed Davey is. He's sandwiched between Neil Hamilton and Chris Patton. So... Mm. Make of that what you want. What was the question? <laughs> is that prompt? That prompted. I don't, I don't know. I'm just reading out. F uh, fame is defined by the percentage of people who have heard of the public figure. Oh, that's different. When asked, have you heard of Ed Davey? Yeah, they may also Pe be thinking about yes. Ed Vasey. This yeah. is always, always an occupational hazard. Enough questions from me. It's time for some questions that you've emailed in. Uh, in fact, this was the word of the year last year. Was whiz, which I don't need to tell you, Peter, is short for risible. Charisma. Um, <laughs> uh, Edwina emailed in and said, Hi Matt, I've just listened to the latest podcast and really enjoyed it. I have a few questions to ask the panel. Uh, what, who do the panel think are the most charismatic people within the main political parties at the moment? And who do they think were the most charismatic leaders of the main political parties in the past? And I suppose the, the follow-up question is, uh, does charisma matter? Peter, who, who do you think's got it? In, in Labour? Well, parties, yeah. <clears throat> I think that alongside Keir Starmer, the two strong women he has uh, on each side of him, Rachel Reeves and Angela Rayner, have a sort of combined charisma 
package. I mean, they appeal to different groups of voters, uh, but together I think they're quite a powerful uh, combination. Um, I cannot... I mean, I suppose in the rest of the Shadow Cabinet, amongst the men... Uh, Wes Streeting and Peter Kyle are the two most often, most frequently Ed talked Milliband, about. Ed Miliband, surely, Peter. Be fair um, to him. To be fair to Ed, um, <laughs> can we move on, please? Daddy's a god. I'm not sure that I think charisma is a good thing, and I'm pleased that not very many people in current British politics have got it. Um, I, you know, I think Boris <laughs> Johnson had charisma. I don't think that was, that was a particularly good thing. I think John McDonnell has a certain kind of charisma. I thought it was extremely dangerous. I think it would be absolutely preposterous suggest that Keir Starmer has charisma, but <laughs> it just is. I know. I, I realised that Peter kind of felt he had to uh, include it in this artful way at the beginning of his sentence, not quite saying Art, he had charisma, artful, but it was artful. art. It was artfully done. But, what? but truthfully, one I'm of rubbish. one of Keir Starmer's, I think he recognised himself. Actually, I think one of Keir Starmer's great advantages is that he is not very charismatic um, and uh, you know he, he's promising people as he, he's I thought quite a clever political strategy with kind of dullness Polly anyone yeah charisma is not the same thing as being sort of presidential um, and Keir Starmer I think has the potential to be presidential yes yeah, possible but, but yeah. the charisma of could you present have I got news for you is something actually better left to national treasures like uh, Boris Johnson uh, <laughs> <laughs> Olivia <laughs> Coleman or, or even, in, the, even in his day Charles Kennedy there we are yeah. exactly very good right that was How to Win an Election with me, Matt Shirley, alongside Peter Madsen, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.